turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking this morning uh, at a passage, in one sense it's really simple, uh, just a few verses, um, and, uh, but we're going we're gonna to look at uh, what it means to be salt and light. So the, we've been talking about the demands of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so today we're going to continue that, and we're going to look at uh, really a way in which Jesus says that we as Christians are to influence the world around us. Um, how many of you have ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? So, all right, all right. So, so every year, it's my practice, uh, after Christmas Eve service, we go home and we eat food and play games as a family, and, uh, and we watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's on 8 o'clock, and so you have plenty of time to get home, and you watch It's a Wonderful Life. And um, I, I love that story. I love the, the theme through it. Now, if you ever take the, just watch that show with a gospel kind of perspective, um, I, love, I love the reality of George Bailey's life, uh, played by Jimmy Stewart, and how uh, he comes to a difficult moment in his life. Basically, his whole life, he's incredibly talented and smart and has all kinds of ambition, and yet it seems as though his whole life uh, is a life somewhat of sacrifice. He's always giving up something of his desires and his wants and his dreams in order to take care of other people and make sure that they're okay. And this is his whole life. And he comes to this crisis moment, if you remember in the show, and he meets his guardian angel, Clarence, and it's sort of this funny little weird character. And, but the cool thing is, is uh, so he says to himself, and Clarence hears, uh, I, I wish I'd never been born. Um, and so the whole show is somewhat like the Scrooge movie without the darkness, but it's basically the show shifts and George Bailey gets a chance to see what life would have been like had he not been born. And, and the whole point of it is, is a little bit of what we're going to talk about today is that, that your life, George Bailey's life has consequences. Like there's, there are, that, that his life mattered. There are things, there are causes and effects and all these things that happen. And because of his life and because of the, the way he lived his life, all kinds of people were affected. And you take that out and all kinds of negative things happen, right? So the, so the, the point is, is that our, our life matters. And it counts. Like every little detail matters. Every little, every little action and every reaction, uh, all of these things actually matter. And I think as Christians, this is even more so significant. That We know this for a fact that our God has created us uh, with the purpose of bringing him glory in this world. And everything about our lives, uh, every detail matters in God's economy. And so this morning... Jesus, in this little passage, these few short verses in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, he's going to tell us two ways that our lives are supposed to influence the world around us. You and I, if you are a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is going to say that you are salt and you are light. You are to impact the world around you. That's not an option. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to be an influential person in the way that he determines. And that's, it's not an option, so just hear me on that. And so listen to these words, and listen to these two ways that Jesus says we, his followers, are to influence and impact the world around us. Let's stand this morning as we read God's word uh, in honor of the fact that it's not our words, but it's his word uh, to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can people light or nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, would you bless this word today? Would you encourage your church with these words? May we today hear what Jesus is saying to us, and may we see this as such a glorious grace to us. The fact that you have us on this earth for a very specific reason. And Lord, what a joy, what an honor, what a grace that you would work in and through us in this way. And so would you bless this time together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Two initial observations before we dive into these two things, salt and light. Um, The first observation is this. That is, Jesus says here that you are the salt of the earth. Keep that in mind. You are the light of the world. Notice that Jesus is not saying you'll become this or you'll grow into this. No, no, no. He says and declares it very definitively, emphatically, you are salt and you are light. That's who you are. All right? Secondly, I think the, a point for us to recognize about this is that our faith as followers of Christ is not to be a subtle faith. We're not to walk around in this world and with, with this sort of subtlety of our faith. And, and what I, the reason why I'm saying that is because over 20-some years of being a pastor, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well... He had faith or she had faith, but it was just sort of between them and God. It was sort of this this quiet thing, you know, between me and God. It was sort of our thing. No one really knew it. But the reality is, especially when you look at what what Jesus is going to say in this passage, is that our faith is not to be subtle. It is to be obvious. It is to be obvious for reasons that Jesus is going to tell us here. That, that our faith is actually to be seen by other people and to be known by other people. Do the people in your life, do the people you work with, do they know that there is something different about your life? Even if they don't know that you're a Christian, do they see something unique and something different about how you act and how you talk and how you work and how you carry yourself and about your character, about the way you love your wife or love your husband or take... Uh, talk to your kids or handle your finances. Is there something unique? Do our faith is not to be something that is hidden, that is somehow in the backdrop. There, the Bible knows no such faith. It knows a faith that is out in the open, that is known and seen by everyone. And God, in fact, intends for that kind of faith to impact the world. Your faith is to have an impact on the world around you. So Jesus says you are salt and you are light and he is clear from this and other passages that our faith is not to be subtle but to be obvious. So the first one he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, Salt 
Just to, just to give you a picture of this, salt in, in, in civilizations throughout all of history was absolutely crucial to the, to the well-being of a civilization. Um, and the more I was studying this, I found like there's a, probably 11 or more uses in the ancient world that you could find of salt. Uh, it was absolutely crucial to any civilization. And in fact, so much so that, salt, uh, that, that soldiers at one point, many places, soldiers, and certainly in Rome, in the Roman world, uh, soldiers were actually paid with salt. Salt was actually currency. And it was so important that it was currency and it was used to pay these soldiers, which is where the phrase came that you are worth your salt. We would say of the soul, this soldier's worth his salt. Right? So we have that saying in our culture today. Right? And so, so salt was so vital. It was actual currency. It was a way of paying people for their service. Salt, uh, in, in many ways, we could look in the Bible, and I'm just going to point out three things. And the reason why I'm just choosing these three is because I th- these are the three that we see in the New Testament. Uh, but there's many more uses of salt. But, but I think when Jesus would have said to these disciples in this moment in history, they would have understood something about salt that I don't think we probably appreciate as much, Right? Uh, because we find in the Bible that salt, in fact, in ancient times especially, but certainly in this season as well, salt had probably three things that we see in the Bible, three things that Jesus probably wanted them to see or understand uh, when he said that you're the salt of the earth. One is that salt, the most important thing is it's a preservative, right? In the ancient world, they didn't have freezers, right? And so salt was a means, in fact, some of you might be able to remember a time in life where salt was used to preserve things, and salt was a means of slowing down the decay of meat, right? It slows the decay of meat. It it keeps it from going bad uh, for a longer period of time, which is absolutely crucial, right? Have you ever had the electricity go out and your freezer gets unplugged or whatever happens, right? Like, uh, just imagine you don't have that freezer, right? And you don't have salt. What are you going to do? Like, it's a serious matter, right? Uh, we, we kind of treasure our freezers and treasure the ability that we have to preserve things pretty easily in our world. But salt was very crucial as a preservative, and it kept things from meat, especially from decaying. But it also provided flavor. The same salt that, provided, that, that preserved the meat and the food that they would eat also flavored it. It gave it flavor. Um, and, uh, and then the second, or thirdly, uh, salt was also a big time in the ancient world used as an antiseptic, as something that would cleanse and sterilize, uh, or like an antiseptic or a cleansing agent, right? Uh, and so this was a very important use. So those three things, and the reason why I bring those three things up is because I can find in the New Testament references to those three things in conjunction to salt and the Old Testament, actually. In Kings, you can find this as well in the first Kings. So when, G, when Paul says, in, for, for instance, Colossians 4, verse 6, he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt, right? He's, he's saying, let, let your speech be such that it is flavored, that it, that, it, that it gives this good flavor off. Let it be something that is really valuable for the building up and the encouragement. Like salt is a good thing, right? I don't know about you, but I use salt on a regular basis to flavor my food, and so do you. And so, so, so Paul's using that as a picture of how the Christian's words are supposed to be to the world, right? And we also even see in Mark chapter 9, there's this crazy passage where it connects salt with the refining fire of God, this purifying effect, right? So we see sort of this antiseptic sort of effect. So, so, let, me just, so let me just 
give you a big picture. So there's three uses of salt. So we could imagine that Jesus' disciples understood these things quite well. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. They understood that salt was a preservative. It kept things from decaying at a faster rate. It still decayed, but it slowed down the rate of decay, right? Salt was something that brought flavor. It brought taste to things, a good taste. People liked it. Uh, it was an antiseptic. It purified. It cleansed uh, everything. And so, so, but think about it in the big picture. I'm, Jesus doesn't say in this passage all of those things. I think those are things that people would have known. But in general, I think we could say that Jesus is, is in essence saying to these disciples and to us that the crucial nature of salt for the well-being of civilizations is also the crucial nature of you and me and those who are followers of Jesus to the well-being of the world. That God has us on this earth as redeemed people of God who've been saved by grace through faith. And he, your very presence on this earth is as important to the well-being of this world as salt is to the well-being of every civilization in history. Does that make sense? That's pretty important. And I, don't, I think it's hard for us to understand that because salt just seems like such a simple thing to us. Right? We don't we depend on it like they did in the ancient world. But just imagine them hearing this, that this is the importance of your presence on this earth. It is a preservative that, that God, through the very presence of his people, holds back the decay of the darkness and the sinfulness of this world. Just imagine these images in their minds. That, that God, through your presence in this world, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, is actually has a cleansing effect. And it actually brings life and brings, brings flavor, a good flavor to this world. That God intends for this to be the case. But he also, in fact, well, you could even think about it in this way. Um, think about this last year. The strife that's on the, on, the, on the face of this earth. And yet, what is the... What is the what, is, what are Christians to be in conjunction to these things? We have strife hatred, gossip, and slander, and backbiting. We have materialism that people just accumulating and wanting more stuff for themselves. We have the devaluing of things that are really important and valuable, right? So think about the effect of, of your life and my life on the face of this earth in the midst of these things, that, that in the midst of strife, we are to be peacemakers. In fact, the very, the very reality of who we are and the characteristics that we're supposed to have right before this passage in the Beatitudes. We're to be merciful, right? We're to be, we're to be those who are meek, those who, are, uh, who hunger and thirst for righteous, those who, are, those who are peacemakers, those who are pure in heart, those who are poor in spirit, those who grieve over their sin. These characteristics are supposed to come out of us, which is a counter to everything in this world. Your presence counters and offsets and holds back the decay and the darkness of this world. That where there's hatred, we are to love. Where there is gossip and slander, we are to show compassion and grace. Where there's materialism, we are to be those who are generous with everything we have, understanding that all of it comes from God, right? You, you see this effect that we are supposed to have on this earth. And, and yet Jesus says, there's, there's, a, there's a negative side of this. He says, but if salt loses its saltiness or saltness, then what? In fact, it's kind of a confusing text to some degree. 
Because he says, if, if you lose, if you lose, if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, from a, from a very, just a, I don't know, a scientific makeup standpoint, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Salt never becomes unsalty because it's a stable compound. It cannot change no matter what. Now, salt can dissolve, right? You can pour water on it and it can dissolve and disperse, but it, can, it never loses its saltiness to one degree. But you have to understand how salt was, was taken back in these days. How did they, where did they get this salt? They got it out of these salt shafts, these salt mines. They dug it out of the earth for the most part. And so when they dug salt out, we don't understand this because the salt that you ate for Christmas Day on your food is pure salt. I mean, pure salt. There's no mixture in it. But in their day, when they would dig it out of the earth, it had a mixture of gypsum and all these other minerals that were mixed in with it. And that kind of salt, it was hard to, in a sense, get all those impurities out. And so oftentimes when they were packing their meat in this salt, it also had these little minerals, these little rocks in it, right? And, and eventually that salt that you had to preserve that meat would sort of dissolve the salt part of it, and it would become less and less salty in a sense because the salt would dissolve and go away, and you would have nothing but these little minerals and these little rocks, and it would become less salty, right? You know, and it would be worthless, right? He says, he says if salt loses its saltiness, how is it going to be made salty again? And on the one hand, there's probably a whole big theological piece that we could go into with this. We're not going to this morning. I just want you to see the simple fact. But, but... I, I think there's a huge, a huge picture here. He's saying, look, it, it's to be thrown out. What they would do with that, was that salt when it got to be like that, they would throw it out onto the road or put it on the steps of the, of the temple, actually, so that it would, in fact, we do this today. We have this rock salt we throw out, and it, it makes uh, slippery places not slippery, right? And uh, they would throw it out onto the road, and it would be trampled to make, make great roads. Uh, and it also, they would throw it out on the steps so people wouldn't slip, uh, when, when it was rainy or cold out. And so it, it basically became useless as salt. And he's, he's giving us a warning here. What about us? And, and I, I think on just a very simple level, the picture here is that what is, what is it that would make us less salty as Christians? That would make us not be whom God has called us to be. We are the salt of the earth. But what would, what would taint that salt, Right? I would say in the image of what they would understand would be the impurities, the mixture of all these, all these other minerals that get mixed in with it. What is it that takes the saltiness out? It's when our character, right, becomes diminished, when we become watered down, when, when our, our lives are not, we're not peacemakers, we're not pure in heart, we're not merciful, when, when our lives get mixed with all these other things that water down our lives and we're not able to be the kind of taste, the kind of salt that God has called us to be. And in fact, I think ultimately what Jesus is saying here by the trampling it under feet is he's saying that when salt, if salt loses its saltiness, in other words, if, if you're found to not be salty, the warning would be maybe you had no salt in the first place. That's the seriousness of it. Because when he talks about being thrown out and trampled, he's talking about judgment. He's it's, it's a serious reference. So he's saying, if your life is not salty, then maybe you don't know Jesus. That's the basic part of it. Maybe you don't know who he is. And so let me just pause at this one here and say, so what about your life? Is your life, the presence of your life, is there something about you 
that brings flavor, that brings life, that's a preservative, that represents the kingdom of God well. That when you speak, your words are seasoned with salt, that people, people are built up and encouraged by your presence. Or is your life, is your life, when you walk into the room, do people go, oh no, there he is <laughs> again, or there she comes. I think, is your life salty? Are the kingdom values that Jesus has described here in the Beatitudes, are they a part of your life? Does your life impact people in a positive way? Does it leave a good taste in their mouth? Now, I just want to be clear. Some people don't like salt. Right before this passage, Jesus makes it clear that one of the blessings of being a Christian is that we're blessed when we're persecuted. So just to be clear, your saltiness may totally annoy and tick people off right people may not like what you represent and therefore you are blessed when others revile you in verse 11 and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice i love that be glad for your reward will be great in heaven don't worry about it but the question is is your life is your life salty does it does it bring life to other people around you. The second picture we get here is one of light. You're not only the salt of the earth, but you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Every disciple of Jesus is the light of the world. Um, what, is, what does that mean? I think the best way to say it, every time the, world, every time the Bible talks about the world, it's oftentimes, almost exclusively, talking about it in terms of darkness. That when it talks about the world, it's seeing the world as this, as this dark place that's rejected God, that's in rebellion, that's, that's like judges, right? Where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Um, everybody's just sort of, uh, we all, I think of Isaiah, we all like sheep have, just, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own ways. So the world, when the Bible talks about the world, is talking about this dark place, this place of darkness, uh, we said this at Christmas time. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, which is the Messiah, right? And so, so when, when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, what does he mean? Uh, John chapter 1, in John chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus, or John says, in him, Jesus, was life. And that life, so it's not that Jesus has life or gives life, per se, he does, but He's saying in him was life. He is life, right? And that life was the light of men. So what is the light that he's referring to here? It's the life of Jesus, right? And, and in essence, as Christians, that life of Christ lives in us. It's flowing through our veins. It's his life is in us, right? And so Jesus' life in us is the light of the world. So Jesus can say, like in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And he can say simultaneously, because of his life that is in you, he's saying you also are the light of the world. Because the very life of Christ is your life. Christ in you is the hope of glory, as Paul would say it. And so, and so that life of Christ is the light of men. And I love what he says. Light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. 
Uh, in one sense, you could say, we could play this out in many ways, but light always dispels the darkness. Darkness doesn't dispel light, right? L- light always dispels the darkness. Darkness cannot overcome the light. The light overcomes the darkness. And so Jesus is saying, he is the life, and that life is the light, and that life is in you, and therefore you are the light of the world as well. In fact, John chapter 3, Jesus says it this way, he says it, and John says, and this, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but what? People loved darkness. See the connection? The light has come into the world, but people, which is talking about the world, the same connection, love darkness rather than light. And in fact, he says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. Because light, you see, light exposes things, good and bad. Light exposes things. And this is partly why your life can sometimes make people mad and bring persecution. Because your life, now notice this too. That the light that Jesus is talking about here isn't simply you and I as Christians standing on the hilltop and proclaiming things to be right or wrong or good or bad. He's talking in particular here to the deeds of your life, to how you live your life. You notice the end of it, he says, let your light so shine before men that they what? That they may see your good deeds. So, so our, our good deeds, good works, the, the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we display in everyday life these beatitudes, these character qualities, that is the light of Christ in us. That's the evidence, in fact, of Christ in us. He's saying, he's saying that our, our lives, so when you live your life like Jesus in the presence of darkness, it's going to make some people feel uncomfortable, right? And it's also going to draw people to Jesus. It's going to help them see Jesus for who he is. Let me just give this five. Paul says, at one time you were darkness. So you were all, all of you, at one time you were darkness. But he says, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of the light. Walk out, live out who you are. You are the light now. Walk as children of the light. But what does that actually mean or what does it look like? Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this. I love this beginning. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. Um, <laughs> I have a regional, uh, or I, have a, I have an interesting view of this sometimes. I get to go around to uh, about 33 churches in our region and work with them in different levels and sometimes challenges and stuff. And, uh, and, I really think in some of our churches, uh, we think that this is actually a spiritual gift, to grumble and complain, (laughs) right? (laughs) I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul says, in opposition to what it means to be light, he begins by saying what it does not mean. Do not be grumbling and complaining. Isn't that interesting? Um, He says, "Do, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? That you may be, in verse 15, blameless, you may be blameless, that is above reproach, and innocent, right? That is above reproach, unable to be accused, children of God without blemish. So just pause right there. Paul's not saying that you are, need to be perfect, that you somehow have everything figured out and you never... He's saying, but your, your life is innocent, meaning you're an open book. 
You have nothing to hide. You're living your life in front of people. That's what it means to be blameless. It means to handle your life correctly from God's perspective, including the good things and the bad things. He says, he says we need to be blameless. We need to be those who live without blemish. That we, when we blow it, we confess it, right? That we live our lives in Christ in front of people. And notice what he says. We are to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation among whom you shine as lights as you hold on to the word of life. Where are we supposed to be light? In the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. Jesus prayed for the disciples. He said, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you preserve them in the midst of it. As Christians, if we are to be light... That comes, what Paul's saying, is the only way that can happen is you have to be in the midst of the darkness. The only way the salt has any effect on the meat was it had to actually be touching it, right? It has to be with the meat. You couldn't have a jar of salt over here, all nice and tidy, and then have some meat over here and hope that they're going to have an influence, right? You can't have light and set it off over here in some other room and all this darkness over here and hope that it will somehow make its way to the darkness. No, no, the way in which salt and light have an effect is it has to be in the midst of this dark world. Living in it. Living in the midst of people and situations. Holding fast to the very word of life that God has given to us. One of the interesting ways that the, new, the first, first century church did this, just an easy way you can see in the New Testament, is that uh, in, the, in the Roman world, in the, Greek, the Greeks cared, could care less about widows and orphans. If you were a widow or you were an orphan, you were relegated to poverty, homelessness typically, uh, sex trade. You were relegated, if you were an orphan, you would oftentimes be sold into slavery you would be abused. No one cared about them. You were in serious trouble if you were a widow or an orphan in that culture. And what did the church get known for? The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5 has a whole chapter almost dedicated to putting practices in place on how to deal with all the widows and orphans. Why? Because the church came along and they took care of widows and orphans. They were the ones. You talk about, you talk about standing out in the world. Being a light in the midst of darkness. People took note of this. Like it, was, it mattered. Like they, they saw this, this reality that they loved these widows and orphans. And you can about imagine people going, what, what are they doing? Right? Like it, it caused them to think. It caused them to be drawn to these people. What is, what is up with their lives that they seem to care about this? The New Testament church was generous. It says they made sure that everyone's needs were met and taken care of. They were generous with what they had. And in fact, they even sold things in order to help out other people, we find. They, they stood out because no one in that culture around would do such a thing. No way am I going to sell my stuff in order to help my neighbor survive. Are you kidding me? Not happening. I'm taking care of my own. And yet the church came along, and they took care of one another, and they took care of their neighbors. They blessed people around them. And this stood out big time. We, too, are to be a light. We are to be a light in the midst of darkness. I, Jesus says here, <coughs> excuse me, he makes two, two absurd comments. 
to make a point. He says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that's kind of like, well, duh. But I don't know, I thought about this in terms of when, when Christy and I were going to college, we would drive across the state of Kansas, which has no hills. And uh, however, uh, there was this town in McPherson, Kansas, where we would come to, and you would see the city. It had a huge refinery in it, and it's just a, this big, sprawling kind of city out on the plains. And, uh, but it was kind of elevated a little bit, and you would see it, and you'd be like, oh, there's McPherson, we're almost there. And then it would be like 20 miles later you would get there, right? And, and Jesus is, in a sense, saying, like, that you cannot hide a city that's up on a hill, right? It's impossible. He's just saying that as an absurd thing, like, right? We all know this. This, is, this doesn't happen. And then he says another thing. He says, nor do people light a lamp. In those days, they would have these oil lamps that they would light. No one lights the lamp and goes to that trouble and then covers it up, right, with a bowl or a basket, right? That would be absurd. It's stupid. No one does that. The only reason why you light the lamp is to put it on a stand in the middle of the room so that it lights up the whole room, right, so people can enjoy it, right? And so, so Jesus is saying this to say to us, don't hide your light. You see, what's, it, what's at stake here or what he's getting at is that it's not the brightness of the light that's at stake. The light is bright. The question is, have you squelched it? Are you putting your light, the light of Christ that's in you, are you sort of covering it up and hiding it by whatever means? Right? The, the light in you is bright, but you and I can apparently cover it up. How do we do that? What are some of the ways that we actually... Uh, maybe through apathy and difference or whatever, what are some of the rays that we, uh, or the reasons why our light sometimes is not seen by everyone? I think one of the reasons is because of fear. We are afraid of the dark. I'm, I'm sometimes worried that as Christians, we, how do I say this? We don't trust God much. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in this world. We're actually afraid of the dark. We're afraid to get close to the dark. We're afraid that it's somehow going to taint us. It's somehow going to overtake us. And we fail to remember the promises of God that darkness will not overcome the light. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in us. I know what some of you are thinking, but the Bible says that bad character corrupts good, bad company corrupts good character. How's that? And I know what you're saying. But I think that's talking to a person who's isolated, who doesn't have, who's not in fellowship with the body of Christ, who's not actually surrounded by people who love them and are praying for them and are walking with them and working with them. But I believe that God intends for us to be planted right in the midst of hell, of this world, right in the midst of darkness, to be right there in the midst of people and to shine, to let our faith be seen to let the love of Christ be known in our lives, to let our words be like seasoned, like salt to people. That when they see us, they, are, they, are, they see something good. They see something that they want. They see that, that our life actually lights the way and points the way to Jesus. And the only way that's possible is that we got to get close to people who are in darkness. And when I close, I mean, we got to be friends of sinners, right? We have to be friends of sinners. Do you have friends who are sinners? Meaning, do you have friends who don't know Jesus? And would they call you friends? Would they actually see you as someone whom they respect and trust and look up to? Are we, are we truly being that? I think sometimes out of fear, we, we don't. Sometimes out of self-righteousness. It's easy for us as Christians sometimes to look at our own lives 
and feel as though our lives are pretty clean, pretty put together, and these other people around us are idiots. <laughs> like they don't get it, right? I know I'm speaking really bluntly here, but right? We can have that attitude, right? We're better than them. We've got it all figured out, right? We can easily just see, see people and look down upon them, and therefore we're like, man, these people don't get it. They, they, they talk, these, they say these foul words all the time, and they just don't get it. They don't know how to raise their kids. They don't know how to talk. They don't know what to do with their money. They're just, and, and we can easily become so full of ourselves that we actually don't love them, that we don't realize that we too, but for the grace of God, would be completely lost and in darkness. That it's only grace. The only thing that separates you from anyone is grace. Something that you did not earn and could not merit, right? And so, and so self-righteousness doesn't even make sense in the midst of the gospel. But another thing is the willingness, I think the willingness to take time that keeps us, our light gets squelched sometimes because in order to truly be friends of sinners, it's going to cost us time. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a sacrifice. Jesus came to this earth as a man, took on flesh, left his heavenly throne, and came down here and became a sacrifice for sin. We too are going to have to sacrifice. It, I think sometimes we struggle to be willing to befriend people who look different than us, talk different than us, have different values than us. It's difficult. Who maybe have really vile languages, language. We think, ah, I don't want that. I don't want to have them. But let me, let me tell you what the world needs, I think. This is just, this is my New Year's uh, plug right here. How will your neighbor kids know what a godly marriage looks like if you don't live among them so that they can see you? How will your coworker know what it looks like to truly love sacrificially, unconditionally, unless you befriend them and spend time with them, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter how they talk? How will your kids know what it looks like to love people who are different than you unless you do it in front of them. And I know you might go, well, but there might be swearing in my house. Yes, yeah, Jesus is bigger than that. He's okay. It's a great opportunity to teach your ch- kids. Um, I, I tell you, one of the graces that God has given to Christy and I, I think, is uh, as we've had kids come into our home in recent years, um, lots of teenagers have come in there, uh, Jaden's friends, and um, I think we've kind of had a little fun with the fact that these kids need to see us have fun and laugh. And they also need to see us fight and work it out. Uh, and there were many times where we would just jokingly, like, I would just lay her over in the midst of all these teens and just plant one right on her, you know. Uh, they need to see that we actually like each other, you know. They need to see what that looks like. Do you realize how rare that is? You realize the treasure that God has given to you to just be a light, like to invite people into your home, into your life, and to go to where they are and hang out and be there and to be a light to them. Evangelism, I think, is not as hard as we think it is. Jesus, Jesus wants our lives to be a positive influence on this world simply by living out the gospel. 
And it's not an either or and proclaiming it as well. It's both and. It's never either or. People don't come to Jesus simply by how you live, but they are drawn to him. And it does provide opportunities for you to then share the gospel, the good news. When somebody asks you, why do you care? Why do you give money to that? And you say, well, let me tell you. I I believe, this is just me. I believe that there is a God who has made us and has provided everything for us. And he is good to us. And I believe that we, that we owe him our lives, that everything I have is because of him. And you can just go through to the gospel, right? You, we have these opportunities in the midst of people who need Jesus. I think about this. Um, what are the consequences of hiding our light? What is the consequences of not being salt? I think one of the consequences of not finding ourselves on a regular basis actually in the midst of darkness being like one one of the consequences is that we for our own lives is we lack intimacy with God. If you want to be close to God, find yourself in really uncomfortable situations on a regular basis. Put yourself in places where it's really uncomfortable and trust God to work. Um, if uh, I, I loved when our reading in Luke for Advent. In Luke, he, he said, uh, he told the disciples, he said, when you get, drawn, you get drugged before the authorities, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. Isn't that what most of us fear? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? Oh, no. Do you realize? I think, I think Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Luke, that's because we don't trust God. Because Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will give you the words to speak when the time is right. And so sometimes it's okay to not say anything. Just be there and wait for God to give you words. Like, put yourself in these situations. It's, it's absolutely, I'm, I sound like a crazy person, but it's absolutely thrilling in one sense. It's so encouraging to your faith to find yourself in crazy places that are so uncomfortable. You have no idea. You're in over your head, and you find yourself there, and you're like, oh, God, please help me. And you're saying this under your breath. God, please help me. Help me to have words. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And you're just there, and then all of a sudden, boom, God just opens up this window and this door. He gives you words to say, and God works in some crazy way. That's how you get close to God. That's one of the means of getting closer. We, we will not see God's power at work unless we find ourselves in those situations. I think also, if we take these two illustrations, these two pictures of how we're to influence the world, if you take these two things out, what happens is that evil goes unchecked in this world as well. If we hide our light, right, there's no check in this world. There's no one to live and counter the darkness of this world if we don't do it. It's, it's us. Like God has put us here to be the light of the world, to be salt. It's like a lighthouse in a sense, right? The lighthouse has this purpose in the, to keep, you know, in the dark to, or in a storm to keep ships from dashing on the rocks and being, you know, done, right? If you just shut the lamp out on the lighthouse, right? I mean, there's serious consequences to that. I believe there's serious consequences to this world, if we as Christians don't shine bright, if we don't plant ourselves down in the midst of people. And what's the whole point of this? What is the light at the end of this? He says, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds. See, that's the beautiful thing about evangelism. It, that part's not hard, right? 
Just live as Christians. That's why he's saying live as children of the light, Paul said. He's like, he's like, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. They're just observing your life that seems so strange and foreign to them because it's so counter to everything in this world. And he says, so that, or the purpose of it is, that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That your good deeds point people, it shows the way, it shines the light and points people to your Father who is in heaven. It gives him glory as we simply live out the reality of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So what could I encourage you for the new year to do? First of all, just grow in the gospel. Just grow in your love for Jesus. If you grow in your love for Jesus genuinely, you are going to be salt and light. If, if you pray, God, continue, form me more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. Make me more like you. Help me to see like you see, to talk like you talk, to love like you love, sacrifice like you sacrifice. And we say it every Sunday here, right, that we might live like Jesus, that we might love like Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. Pray for God to make this a reality more and more and more. So grow in your love for the gospel and your understanding that everything you have, including your breath and your life and your stuff and your family, all of it's a gift of grace from God, all of it. And just, just trust God with that. Grow deeper in your love for him and for what he has done in your life and saving you and rescuing you from sin and death and desire that for other people. And then secondly, pursue life among people around you. Pursue life. If I could encourage you to do anything, plant yourself in what you believe to be the most awkward situation you could possibly plant yourself into this next week. That neighbor that drives you crazy, that lives a life that is totally nuts, go over there. Give them some cookies. No one turns down food. Well, maybe in COVID, I don't know. Do something simply to say hi. Plant yourself there and trust God to work. All right? Invite their kids to your house. Have them over. Spend time with them. Pursue life among and around the people around you. Be among them that you would be salt and that you would be light. This is what God intends for your life. And I believe, I believe it is absolutely the most joyful place to be. It is exactly where God wants us. I think, in fact, um, when we are actually pursuing this kind of life, when we're on the front lines of where God wants us to be, being salt and light, I think when Paul talked about do everything without grumbling and complaining, you don't have time to grumble and complain. When you're living the life of Jesus in front of the people around you, you don't have time for it, right? You don't. In fact, it's the counter. Your life becomes the anti-grumbling and complaining, right? When you're in the presence of grumblers and complainers, they can't figure out why you're so joyful, why you're not complaining, why you see Jesus in everything, right? So um, let us be salt and light in this dark world. Amen? Let's do it. Like, this is what God's called you to. Isn't it amazing? He, in, he, he intends for our lives to have that kind of influence on people, that our lives have consequence, that has significance, not because of who we are, but because of the life of Jesus that is in us. Do people see that life in the way you live, in the way you love, in the way you, uh, you know, treat your kids, spend your money, live life? Every little detail matters for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, man, 
what an amazing reality that you've given to us, that we are called to be the salt of the earth, that our lives are essential to the welfare of this world. That's, that's the work you've done in us. That's the life that you have, that you've given to us, that our lives matter that much in this world. That you intend for our lives to light up this world, to be a light, that our good deeds done in the name of Jesus to everyone around us, that these things would matter, that these things would point people to you, Father, to your goodness and to your grace, not to us, not to what we have to offer, but because of Christ in us, they would be able to see you, Father, and they would be drawn to you, and they would be saved and rescued, and they would know this grace that we know. And so, God, would you allow our lives this next year to have that kind of an influence and impact, meaningful impact on the people around us who desperately need Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen.